Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information on History Hub and to download many more podcasts, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. In this episode, part one of Professor Brian Shane's five-part series, Abraham Lincoln, The Life and Death of a Statesman. I'm Brian Shane, Mary Ball Washington Professor of American History at University College Dublin and Associate Professor of History at Ohio University. I would like to thank the Fulbright Commission, University College Dublin School of History, and Ohio University's History Department. These podcasts are based on a talk that was delivered in Westport, Ireland on the 24th of April, 2015. Special thanks to the Westport Classical Cobies, Westport Historical Society, and Westport Pacific Trust for their support of the Lincoln Lecture. Abraham Lincoln, The Life and Death of a Statesman Assassination 2015 marks the 150-year anniversary of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, the 16th President of the United States. He was shot dead as he and his wife, Mary Todd, watched a British comedy, Our American Cousin, at Ford's Theatre. The assassination occurred on Good Friday, in the final month of a war now believed to have killed over 700,000 people. The death of the president sent shockwaves through the United States and the world. One assembly of Dubliners declared that the assassination was, without doubt, the most horrible catastrophe which had occurred within the memory of man, perhaps only paralleled by the assassination of the first Caesar. Lincoln's murderer, well-known actor John Wilkes Booth, might have appreciated the comparison, though not the conclusion. His private diary reveals that he had cast himself as the Brutus who was striking down a greater tyrant than Caesar. Six semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants, he reportedly shouted after leaping from the balcony. By destroying the executive leadership when Congress was out of session, Booth hoped to create anarchy in the North, thus fanning the embers of Confederate nationalism that were dying on Southern battlefields so that they could burn again brightly. The cornerstone of that aspiring Southern nation, slavery, which Booth declared one of the greatest blessings that God had ever bestowed upon a favored nation, might yet be made safe, at least from the author of the Emancipation Proclamation and recent proponent of limited black enfranchisement. Booth carried out his part of the conspiracy, though two of his co-conspirators failed in their mission. The one tasked with killing Vice President Andrew Johnson backed out at the last moment. Another conspirator forced his way into Secretary of State William Seward's bedroom, where the most powerful man in Lincoln's cabinet lay recovering from a carriage accident that had broken his jaw. Fortuitously, the splint he was wearing in all likelihood saved his life. Tragically, though, Booth profited from a derelict guard and timed his attack at one of the play's key laugh lines, successfully delivering a fatal shot to the back of Lincoln's head before escaping. Lincoln's dying body was carried across the street to a boarding house, where the president passed away a little after 7 o'clock the next morning. During his last hours, Lincoln was put under the guardianship of County Ross Common native and Provost Marshal for the District of Columbia, James O'Byrne. The Irishman was in the room when the president died, and the next day, Secretary of War Henry Stanton, who briefly seized practically the entire executive power of the country, ordered him to lead the early stages of the manhunt for Booth and his accomplices. The president had died. But as O'Baron and other detectives pursued the conspirators, it became clear that Booth's larger purpose had failed. Confederate armies capitulated, most even before Booth was tracked, surrounded, and shot after he refused to surrender on the 26th of April. 
Contrary to his expectations, at home and abroad, news of Lincoln's death generated an unprecedented outpouring of support for a president now perceived as a martyr for freedom and Republican government. The official expressions of support and condolences that poured in from foreign governments and citizens would eventually fill 800 printed pages. Ireland in particular had been watching events in the United States with close attention. Provost de Baron was one of nearly 200,000 Irish-born soldiers who fought in the Civil War. 20,000 fought for the Confederacy, the rest for the Union. Irishmen composed nearly 12% of the Union Army. The Union's utilization of Irish immigrants was so great that by the end of 1863, Confederates sent a Catholic priest from St. Louis to staunch the flow of Irishmen into the Union Army. A semi-successful Confederate media campaign in Ireland focused on Union hypocrisy, anti-Catholicism, and especially the bloodletting that by 1863 appeared endless. On this island, as elsewhere, in the year's final years, Lincoln's image as the great emancipator and protector of liberty competed with an image of a leader who suppressed an aspiring nation by brutally sending thousands of Irishmen to their deaths. Yet after Lincoln's death, with Union victory imminent, and word that the 13th Amendment would abolish slavery, the former image of Lincoln, the freedom-loving preserver of the Union, prevailed. Newspapers and assemblies in Dublin, Belfast, and Galway praised Lincoln and the cause for which he fought. The Freeman's Journal doubted whether modern history contains a grander character than the humble lawyer of Illinois. Praising his diplomatic efforts, it noted, all lament the good man and the great statesman. In this series of podcasts, we'll discuss the personal attributes and experiences of this good man, who in the hardest of circumstances, facing the disillusion of his country, made the toughest decisions, often rather controversial ones. Those decisions, crucial to the victory of the Union cause at home and abroad, give credence to the claim that Lincoln, despite or even because of his imperfections, had become a great statesman. History is filled with individuals whose flame burned bright in life but fades with time. Lincoln's has done the opposite, as he has become one of the world's most noticeable figures and faces, a man captured not only on U.S. stamps and coins, but on those from other countries in the world, a man who has had major motion pictures made about him, some of them reasonably good. Perhaps you've seen Steven Spielberg's production starring Daniel Day-Lewis, others truly awful. More seriously, scholars have devoted so much attention to Lincoln that on the U.S. President's Day in February 2012, a three-story high tower of books was constructed of works about him. Like the man, it's impossible to do justice to this literature. But we can spend here some time focusing on a few themes regarding his life, some poignant moments and crucial developments that might help us get our mind around Lincoln, the man, and his political significance for the broader world then, and perhaps for us here today. Three themes will emerge, and I'll highlight them here. First, whether politically, socially, or geographically, from an early stage in his life, Lincoln was defined by borders. His ability to identify, navigate, draw, and redefine boundaries served him and the Union cause well. Second, Lincoln's actions were guided by a deep emotional and legal commitment to what he saw as the ideals of the American founders, as expressed in the Declaration of Independence. He described it as a golden apple surrounded by a silver frame, the Constitution. Protecting these ideas motivated his actions, including even those later judged by some to have exceeded his constitutional authority. Finally, Lincoln's perceptions, opinions, and political stances were not static, but instead were open to new ideas and growth, especially when it came to questions of emancipation and equality across the color line. 
His views on these issues in particular were not what we would expect of people today, but were ahead of most white Americans at that time. Perhaps famed early 20th century African-American civil rights leader W.E.B. Du Bois said it best when he credited Lincoln with being, quote, big enough to be inconsistent, cruel, merciful, peace-loving, a fighter, despising Negroes and letting them fight and vote, protecting slavery and freeing slaves. He was a man, a big, inconsistent, brave man. To appreciate Lincoln's ability to evolve on these crucial ideas helps us to understand how a man who in 1858 rejected the idea of black equality came to reference the possibility of black enfranchisement in his last speech just days before his assassination. It's easy in hindsight to think Lincoln was destined for greatness, but from the vantage point of most of his life, it appeared rather unlikely. Lincoln's arrival to Washington, D.C. was anything but auspicious. Before his inauguration, threats of an assassination attempt had convinced Pinkerton guards to smuggle Lincoln into the Capitol on an earlier night train so as to protect him. The republic he was elected to lead appeared to be falling apart. Seven states had already seceded, and many thought the Union could not be saved. Lincoln was and would remain the subject of harsh characterizations. Physical appearance was routinely stressed. Upon his first meeting, Dublin-born correspondent for the London Times, William Howard Russell, described Lincoln as a tall, lank, lean man with stooping shoulders, long, pendulous arms, terminating in hands of extraordinary dimensions, which, however, were far exceeded in proportion by his feet. Dressed in an ill-fitting, wrinkled suit of black, which put one in mind of an undertaker's uniform, and with a thatch of wild Republican hair. Punch Magazine, the London satirical uh, commentary, pointedly made fun of both Lincoln and the fate of the Union that he led. For many Europeans, the outbreak of civil war simply confirmed what they already felt to be true. Republican governance was ill-suited for the era's challenges. It put riffraff in charge of structurally unsound institutions destined to fail. Lincoln himself was aware of the oddity of his being in the situation. In the last year of the Civil War, he noted to a Canadian guest that it was very strange that I, a boy brought up in the woods, and seeing, as it were, but little of the world, should be drifted into the very apex of this great event. So let's rewind a bit and examine how this boy brought up in the woods ascended onto the world stage. We hope you enjoyed this History Hub podcast. To receive updates on the latest History Hub podcasts and papers, please subscribe to our mailing list on historyhub.ie.